are listening to The Great Light Podcast. This podcast is a production of Great Light Studios. For more information and resources, or to watch our films, go to greatlightstudios.com or find us on Facebook or YouTube. If you would like to support the ministry of Great Light Studios, you can do so easily and securely through our website. There, you can also find both video and audio versions of the podcast. Hebrews 6 is one of the chapters in the Bible that causes more fear than probably any other in uh, a lot of Christians, a lot of believers. There's a lot of people, especially those Christians who have backslidden or fallen into a period or season of sin, that come across this passage and others like it, but I think this is this is probably the main passage. Um, they'll come across places like this in, in the scripture and it will cause a lot of fear, a lot of confusion, a lot of condemnation. And for a lot of people, it kind of puts them in this place of feeling completely hopeless. They'll interpret what this says as if it's it's saying that because of the, the kind of sin they've committed, because of what they've done, um, the specifics of it, they'll think that their sin sort of fits into this, this category of the unforgivable sin. And, and then there's this phrase in this passage in Hebrews 6 that talks about it's impossible for this sort of people, this, this sort of person to be renewed again to repentance. There's that phrase in there, that phrase that is at the core, I think, of, of what, what fuels um, so many people's fear as it relates to this passage. And so this, obviously, this relates to the, the issue of the unpardonable sin. And so this is kind of the, the second video in, in a series of videos I'm going to do in, in talking about that specific topic. Um, in the first one, I just talked about the unpardonable sin passage, the unforgivable sin passage from Mark, where Jesus specifically talks about the sin that has no forgiveness. Um, in that video, uh, I talk about what what the unforgivable sin is and what I think it is not, and, and then just give some encouragement about that. If you haven't watched that and you're struggling with that idea, um, I'll put link a link to that in the description of this video. Um, I do think it'd be helpful because I think as I'm going through the series, I'll probably be building on different things that I've I've covered already in the last videos. And so, um, but this is this is going to be the second part. I want to with this topic of the unpardonable sin. Um, I want to deal with the passages like this that I know from experience that people really really struggle with. And I say from experience because I. I went through a period where I really, uh, I really struggled with this, um, this passage in particular, but, but many others, you know, there's obviously, um, there's Hebrews 10, there's Hebrews 12 that talks about Esau. There's some other passages that if you are dealing with this fear right now from the scriptures and you're probably aware of what I'm talking about, but this is, was kind of the king for me. And it was a passage that I really had to wrestle with. And I spent, you know, I, I would I would lay in bed just going to sleep, uh, just wrestling with this and, and and just kind of rolling the verses over and over in my head and trying to figure out, in light of what this is saying, does do I have hope? Does it does it leave me with any hope of salvation? And and again, this scripture to me, what it was saying is that because of what I had done, because of the point I had gotten to, because of the certain way I disobeyed my my unbelief in the in the form that it took, um, I, I felt like it was um, blasphemy against God. It was it was very blatant sin, and so I thought I was beyond hope. I was um, I, I I was in a position where it was impossible for me to be renewed to repentance, and that put me in this place of complete um, despair and hopelessness and just uh, torment, really. Um, it was a, a crazy emotional and spiritual time um, that was, you know, this was about 10 years or so ago that that really hit me hard that that period of my life. I'm thankful that I'm, I'm out of that. I'm very far removed. And through that experience, what God, uh, what God did is, is really deepened in me a, 
an appreciation for and a a knowledge of really just it, it gave me a more personal intimate knowledge of Jesus and the fullness of the gospel. And when I was in darkness, when any of us are in darkness, that is when we're going to really be able to know what it means that Jesus is the light of the world. It's it's easy to just hear that, you know, theological uh, uh, teachings like that, you know, Jesus is the light of the world. And, you know, that sounds nice and, and wonderful. But when you are actually in a place of spiritual and emotional darkness, when you're in any kind of like just deep darkness, and you're able to look at Jesus and the promises that are in him, you're able to look and see who he is, what he He has done, and you're able to connect that with how that relates to you and your specific situation, your specific needs and, and distress, you're able to see Jesus as the solution to what you're going through, as the only solution. That is when that those statements, those phrases about Jesus being the light, that's when they're going to become very real to you. They're going to become um, more, more than just theological ideas and constructs. It's going to become a living experience. And that's exactly what happened to me. I uh, And even, even with this passage, when I began to unpack it, when I began to understand, I would read other teachers, some of whom I really disagreed with, and I really even more strongly today disagree with some interpretations of this passage that I think only further fuel people's fear and condemnation. And I think it's coming from a misunderstanding of what this is saying. Um, I, I also, though, I found other teachers who... Um, I think were aligning in what they were drawing from this. They were aligning with what I feel like God was teaching me about this. And ultimately, I feel like Jesus became bigger. The gospel became bigger as I understood what Hebrews 6 is saying and what it's not saying. And so that's what I want to talk about in this video. I'm going to talk about Hebrews 6. I'm going to, I'm going to try to keep this as short as possible, but I do have a lot of thoughts, a lot, a lot of, um, uh, emotion even tied to this whole conversation. And this video is mostly, I'm aiming this toward a specific kind of person, a specific group of people. I think a lot of people hopefully can benefit this, benefit from this, even if you're just kind of wanting an idea of what uh, Hebrew 6 is about. But I'm primarily aiming this at people who are sitting somewhere in darkness, spiritually and emotionally, terrified by this verse, who feel debilitated by verses like this. I I want to dive into this and I want to talk about what I think this scripture is saying and I want to talk about what I think it is not saying. I think so many people's fear surrounding this scripture really comes from them looking at it and interpreting it in a way that they make it say something that it's not saying. And then what it's not saying, they take that and that drives the, the fear in them. So I want to show you what this is not saying, as well as showing you what I think it is saying. So first, what I'm going to do, I'm just going to read through these verses. I'm going to read through this first section of Hebrews 6, the section that causes people so much confusion, so much fear. And first, I think what we're going to have to do, and you'll see why once we get into this, we're going to have to answer the question. I think before we really explain what this is about, we have to answer the question of who is this about? This is a warning being given here in Hebrews. Who is this about? Um, to kind of set the context, this this letter written by the, the author of Hebrews, nobody really knows who it is, who wrote this. Some people think it was Paul. I, I don't really know. Some people think maybe Barnabas. Um, there's different opinions about that. Again, nobody really knows. But the author of Hebrews is writing this letter to uh, Jewish believers who are being tempted. They, they, they once lived under the, the Mosaic law, the ordinances, the rules of the law, and they received the gospel. They received Jesus and got free from that. They, they moved on away from that old way of thinking. They moved on to the reality of the new covenant, the, the, the laws and ordinances, the rules, the, the feasts and things like that, that were shadows. Uh, they were shadows and now Jesus has, had come as the reality. And the apostles, the teaching of the New Testament is that we are to move on and focus our intention entirely on the reality and not go back to the shadows. 
So these believers had done that. They had moved to faith in Christ. They had received Jesus. And it talks about in some places in Hebrews how some of them were even, you know, they would, um, they were enduring suffering for the sake of Christ. They were, they were allowing their possessions to be, um, um, you know, they were being destroyed and their lives were being messed up because of their faith in the gospel, but they were embracing suffering uh, faithfully as disciples of Jesus. They were true believers. They had truly begun to follow Jesus. And so the problem though, is that they were being pressured and tempted to revert back to relating to God based on old covenant practices that, um, and, and we don't have to get into a, a whole lot of specifics about all that. These believers that are being written to here, the warnings that's, that are being given here are two believers who they had received the gospel of Jesus. They had moved away from this old way of thinking about relating to God in a nutshell, based on works. They had moved away from that mentality. Now they're being tempted to, in a sense, abandon that faith in Jesus that they had uh, grasped and, and received and to go back to a works-based sort of mentality. This isn't um, this isn't something that they're like accidentally slipping into. It's something that they're being tempted to knowingly and decisively choose to say, in a sense, I had Jesus, I tried that, that was great, you know, but I'm going to go back to this way of living. I'm going to go back to basically works-based a works-based relationship with God. And they were doing that because to hold on to simple faith in Christ, to them in the context they were in, involved persecution. Um, they were going against the grain. And so to to revert back to, to relating to God again and keeping these ordinances and relating to God in more of an old covenant, Old Testament sort of way, as they once did, that would alleviate some of that pressure and that persecution that they were experiencing from others. So there's that temptation. So Hebrews is written in, in large part to these believers who are being encouraged and exhorted uh, to not do that, to not abandon that faith in Jesus. Okay, so with that sort of laid as a context, um, let me read through Hebrews 6 verses 1 through 12. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible. This is, this is one of the main parts that causes the fear and the confusion surrounding this verse. So it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Okay, so first before I explain what this is saying. I, it, we have to know who this is about. And this is where a lot of debate, uh, this is one of the probably, would probably make the top 10 list of most debated controversial scriptures. Um, and one of the reasons why is because this involves, understanding this passage involves knowing who is this warning being given to. And so the question is, is this about genuine believers? Is the warning being given here to people who have genuinely believed in the gospel, who are genuinely saved, or is this a warning to what a lot of interpreters, a lot of teachers would say, uh, false converts? So people who had some form of an experience of Christianity, but weren't ever truly fully saved. So that's the question. So let's look back Starting at verse 4, it says it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. So this is describing what these people have experienced. They've been enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but I think if you just take this in its plain sense, uh, a reading of it, I think the clear straightforward, 
understanding of this, especially in the context of the rest of the book of Hebrews, is that this is very obviously about genuine, real believers. It, there's nothing to imply that as the writer of Hebrews is talking, that he's he's talking about people that he thinks possibly were never truly saved. He's talking about people that he knows had a genuine conversion, who genuinely embraced and received Jesus by faith. And now he knows there's a genuine possibility of these people abandoning that faith. So again, these people have been enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift, shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. So here it says they've, they've shared in the Holy Spirit um, and they've, they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. They've tasted the heavenly gift. So what a lot of teachers would, would do at this point is they'll say that this word taste doesn't imply like a full and complete experience of, of the gospel or experience of salvation. It just implies that they had like a little nibble or something like that. They just had this little nibble of, of salvation, but they didn't fully engage with it. They didn't fully receive it or embrace it. Um, and so I think there's problems with that. One of which comes from Hebrews 2, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. So we're going to see that word taste show up again here. Um, so Hebrews 2, 9, it says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So here again, is that it's that same word, just a few chapters before, same author, same book, he's using that word taste. And he's saying Jesus tasted of death. Okay, so if you go to Hebrews, where a lot of people would try to, well, basically they're going to try to say that this is about false converts, people who weren't really saved. The reason they do that is because there's some pretty clear implications here um, that if this is about genuine believers, then that throws a pretty big wrench in a lot of people's theology because the conclusion of this verse is pretty clear. If this is, if this is real sincere believers who this warning is being given to, then that means there's a real sincere possibility that real believers can abandon their faith and so, in doing so, forfeit the inheritance of Christ, I think, including salvation and forgiveness. In essence, in a nutshell, to put that in more clear terms, if this is talking about genuine believers, the implications is that a believer can lose salvation. That is something that so many people are very, very uncomfortable with. And I understand that. Um, I understand why that's, that's an uncomfortable place to go for a lot of people. And there's some implications to that. Um, but I think that's what this is saying. But what I think a lot of teachers will do is, again, they'll emphasize the words taste, that they tasted the heavenly gift, um, that they tasted the goodness of the word of God. And again, they'll try to imply that that just means that they had a little nibble of these things, but not a full experience. But Hebrews 2, 9, again, just a few chapters earlier, that same word is used about Jesus. And it says he tasted death. Now, we know that Jesus didn't just have a little niblet, a little nibble of death. He had the full and complete experience of it, that Jesus took all that death is, all that it involves. He had to take that on himself so that we don't have to. So Jesus, when he tasted death, the word taste here isn't being used by the author of Hebrews to imply just, just a little nibble of death, or, 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 or it's not meant to imply that he didn't fully participate or partake or share in death. This is a full and complete experience of death that Jesus had. And so I think it's very reasonable to just turn a ch couple chapters later, again, same book, same author, using the same word, and to assume that when he says, these people tasted the heavenly gift. He's not, he's not implying just a little niblet, that these people had a full, they fully experienced the heavenly gift. They shared in the Holy Spirit. They, again, tasted the goodness of the word of God, which would, would again, I think, if we, we, we take it in line with that verse from Hebrews 2, they had a full participation in, they fully experienced the goodness of the word of God. They received the word of God, which, what does the word of God do? It produces faith. That causes somebody to be born again. I think these people were born again, genuine, real believers. Um, going back to this part here where it says he they shared in the Holy Spirit. 
Well, I don't, again, I don't think this just means like a, a little, uh, you know, nibble of the Holy Spirit. This is, this is sharing, sharing in the experience of the Holy Spirit, but who would they be sharing with? Well, they're sharing with other believers, which would imply that they are having the same experience of the Holy Spirit as other believers. I think even including the, the person who is writing this book, I think you could probably say that the, the um, implication is that the experience that the writer of Hebrews had with the Holy Spirit, he's saying that these people shared in that same experience. Um, so this is about believers. I, I, I think <clears throat> unless you come into this book of the Bible, unless you come into Hebrews 6 with pre-commitments to certain theological views, you know, about uh, perseverance of the saints or once saved, always saved, um, I think that the obvious uh, meaning of these verses, the what what the obvious takeaway from this is that this is a warning to real believers. Um, I I don't necessarily like this view, and so I'm not holding on to this view because of theological commitments or bias. The reason I came to this view ultimately was because of scripture. When I went and started reading scripture for myself and I was away from the, um, I wasn't just listening to what teachers were telling me about things like perseverance of the saints or once saved, always saved. But I just looked at what the scriptures said. I could not help but change my views. I once, I would say was a pretty solid uh, uh, once saved, always saved proponent, proponent where I believe that if, if you're a genuine believer, there's nothing you can do. There's no possible chance that you could become unsaved. But the Bible changed my mind. The Bible convinced me otherwise to the point where I, I did not feel, and I to this day do not feel like I can read through the Bible and be honest with it and hold to a once saved, always saved view or even a perseverance of the saints type view. Now, I think both of those views within them have really good aspects of them. They have elements uh, of things in them that I agree with and that I think are good. And, and I think there's elements of, you know, even security that I think is is there. This is all stuff that um, I, I need to talk about in a completely separate video. I, I want to do a whole other video where I talk about more why I hold this view because I know this is a controversial view. It's not It's not a hugely popular view. It's not something you hear just kind of plainly said very often, but I think it's, it's something that is um, biblical. It's something that to the best of my knowledge of understanding what the Bible actually teaches, it's, it teaches that a sincere believer, a real genuine believer can become a real genuine unbeliever and forfeit their inheritance in Christ. And so I'd like to get, again, I'd like to get that, uh, talk about that more in another video. And, and also not to just talk about more reasons, biblical evidence and reasons why I hold that view, but to talk about why I believe people can still have great security and assurance, even if that is true. Even I would say, though, I believe it is biblically true. <clears throat> um, and so I'm not condemning people who teach a different view of this passage, um, I, I understand that there's different views. I understand that different people have good reasons probably for holding their views. There's people who look at Hebrews six and they think it's not talking about genuine believers. I disagree. I think that goes contrary to what the, the clear meaning of the passage is. And I think also, I think you have to, again, enter into that passage with pre-commitments to other theological views. And then you have to try to I think you have to kind of insert your own views into the text first to be able to draw out the idea that that isn't about true believers, if that makes sense. But I don't want to get into that a whole lot. I just, I thought it was important to first establish that Hebrews 6 is a warning to genuine believers. Um, so with that said, just to make this clear, is it possible, and is Hebrews 6 teaching that it is possible for a genuinely saved believer to become an unbeliever and so forfeit the benefits of Christ, including salvation and forgiveness of sins. Again, this is one of the main questions people want to know relating to Hebrews 6 and what it is and what it is not teaching. Is, is it teaching that a real believer can, to, to put it in clear terms, can become unsaved? 
And I would say that the biblical answer to this is yes. And I'd say that for two reasons. One, the Bible over and over gives warnings to believers about the real danger of falling away. To pass off all of these passages as simply being warnings to false converts, which is something that I think a lot of people who interpret this passage do, a lot of Bible teachers do with this verse, is they simply say, well, this is just a warning to false converts, people who never really believed. Um, I feel like, to me, it feels like a, a cop-out. And I feel like it's rooted in pre-commitments to certain theological views rather than being an honest and meaningful exegesis of what these texts are plainly and clearly teaching. The Bible makes clear that believers can fall away from faith and so become unbelievers. So firstly, I believe that a genuine believer can fall from faith and forfeit salvation simply because the New Testament consistently warns against it. So why do I believe that real believers can forfeit salvation, basically? Again, I'm giving two reasons why. One is because all the warning passages. There's warning passages over and over and over again to real believers about the real possibility of abandoning that faith. The apostles are constantly encouraging and exhorting the church to continue in the faith. Um, that seems to be redundant, and and, and maybe you could you could work into that some ideas of of God's sovereignty and stuff to to make sense of that. But to me that doesn't make a whole lot of sense unless um, there's a real possibility of believers abandoning faith. There's not a whole lot of sense to the apostles constantly commending and exhorting believers to remain in the faith unless there's a real possibility of them not doing so. So number one, the warnings. Number two, in the Bible, God only saves believers, not unbelievers. Nowhere in the Bible do I see hope of forgiveness, salvation, or any other elements of reconciliation with God given to unbelievers. So the Bible warns that a true believer can become an unbeliever. Second, the Bible never gives assurance or hope to unbelievers. The teaching of the Bible is that God saves a certain category of people. He saves believers. God does not save the, the category of people unbelievers. If, if you're a person who is within the category of unbeliever, somebody who is standing in the light of God, God has given you this light, this conviction about what is true, and you've said, no, I don't want that. In whatever way that looks like, you are in the category of an unbeliever. If you're in the category of a believer, somebody that God has, again, extended his light and truth to, and you've received it, <clears throat> you've believed it, you've trusted in it, you are in the category of an unbeliever. The warnings of the Bible seem to indicate that you can be a believer, but you if you um, you can revert back to unbelief. And the Bible only gives assurance, hope, forgiveness to believers. God saves believers. God does not save unbelievers. And I see no place in the Bible that gives assurance to unbelievers. So th those are the two reasons. With those two points, the warnings in the scripture and the fact that God only saves believers and not believers, that leads me to conclude that true believers can truly fall away from the faith and become unbelievers. Those people who fall away and become unbelievers will not be saved since the Bible explicitly teaches that only believers will be saved and that rejectors or unbelievers in the gospel will be condemned. So this is heavy. And, and if you came to this this video looking for encouragement, I hope you'll stick around because I know this might sound heavy at first, but I don't, I think it's not as heavy as you might think. The warning here for all of us, and it should be just plain and straightforward. This is, this really is nothing new. This, this is just kind of the gospel 101. God saves believers. God doesn't save unbelievers. If I revert to unbelief and rejection of the gospel, well, of course, I shouldn't feel confident and assured of my salvation. Of course, I shouldn't feel like, like I'm in good terms with God. God's promises are for those who have faith in him. And, and, but if I'm a believer, if I'm pursuing faith in him, even with my ups and downs, even if with my weaknesses, even with struggles, then there's no reason to fear. God doesn't expect perfection. He doesn't expect um, um, anything beyond our faith. And through our faith, 
he, his Holy Spirit does his work in us. Obviously, we have to, we have to continue though to choose to obey him by faith. We have to continue to choose faith. Um, but, but I'm saying all that to say, I don't, I would hope that that those concepts don't lead you to fear. I think it's important to establish in Hebrews 6 that this is talking about sincere believers and to just look at what this is teaching, especially in the context with the rest of the book and the rest of the New Testament, the rest of the Bible, it seems pretty clear that it's 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 giving a warning that true believers can fall away. So what is Hebrews 6 teaching then? What, what's the rest of this warning all about? Going back to verse 6, um, first in verse 4, it says it's impossible in the case of these, we've established, these genuine believers, if they fall away, verse 6, to restore them again to repentance. Okay, so here, here's the key part. This is the part that if you're wrestling with this verse, if you're struggling with it, I think this part should help you. If you really focus in on this, if you if you want to highlight something or circle something, this is this. I'm going to give you a couple words here that you should circle that bring out, I think, the meaning of what's being said here. It's impossible if they fall away to restore them again to repentance. And then he uses this word here, since. Since. And some of your translation may, um, depending on what version of the Bible you have, it might say because. So he's about to tell us what is the source of the impossibility. So it's impossible for these people to be restored to repentance since or because of something. He's about to tell us what, what is the cause. So because, and here's what it is. They are crucifying, once again, the Son of God to their own harm. Okay, so the second thing to circle or highlight, if you're wanting to, to really get at what this passage is saying, it's these words here, are crucifying. This is what ultimately gave me freedom. When I, when I was really wrestling with this verse, trying to figure out what it meant, trying to find hope, feeling so incredibly condemned by this verse. This right here, this phrase here, understanding it, and really it was it was understanding the Greek uh, uh, verbiage used here. That is what gave me freedom and I think helped me to put this passage in its proper place. The reason it's impossible for these people to be renewed to repentance is since they are crucifying the Son of God. So that word there, are crucifying, um, it's in the present tense, present active tense. So seeing that they are crucifying the Son of God. That means this is something that they are presently doing. It's not, it's not saying that they did crucify him. It's not saying this was this momentary action where they committed this certain sin, which was equivalent to crucifying Jesus. So they crucified him again, and now they're stuck in this, this place of not of it being impossible to be renewed to repentance. It doesn't say that. What it says is that the reason, again, it says it uses those words, seeing that or since or because, the reason it's impossible um, th this phrase here, since, because, again, seeing that your, your versions are going to use a different word depending on what uh, translation you have. But these phrases are explaining why it is impossible and what it is that is making it impossible. And what do they say? They say, since they are crucifying. Again, present and active tense, which means that this is something that is ongoing. This isn't something that, this isn't a specific sin or even season of sin or action of sin that these people committed. And now the author of Hebrews is looking at them saying, if you guys did this certain thing or committed this certain sin, then it's too late for you. You're cut off, there's no hope. But what he's saying is for those who are ongoing, who are presently and actively continuing in rejection of Jesus, they are crucifying the Son of God afresh, then for these people who are who continue on in that, it is impossible to renew them to repentance. Do you see how, I, I hope, even if you're not fully there yet, I hope, I hope you're beginning to see how just understanding the tense of these words 
I think brings so much clarity to what this is and what this is not saying. So another way that you could say this or translate it, and I think even in the ESV, it, it puts this in the footnotes, is, is while they are crucifying the Son of God. Meaning that if you kind of follow that through, put it all together, it is impossible for these Christians who had this real experience of salvation in Jesus, if they fall away, and falling away, what does it mean in, in the passage here? If they fall away, which means they are crucifying the Son of God, well, what's that mean? Well, it means that, again, going back to what we started out with, you have these believers who had received Jesus, but now they're basically putting him on the shelf. They're saying, they're making a willful, decisive decision to say, I no longer choose faith and trust in Jesus. That is not the way by which I want to relate to God anymore. I, I, I tried that. I don't want it. They're in effect saying Jesus is not worthy of their faith and devotion, that all that they, they had believed about Jesus, all that he is, all that that meant in relation to the law and, and what place the law now had in a believer's life, they were saying, I want to abandon that. They were setting Jesus aside. This wasn't a momentary sin. This wasn't some specific phrase or curse. This wasn't anything like that. This was a decisive action of the heart to say, I no longer believe or trust in Jesus. My allegiance is, I no longer want to give my allegiance, my faith, my trust to him. In doing that, they were in essence having the same attitude in mind as those who crucified Jesus and holding him up to public shame. They were saying he is not who he says he is. He is not worthy of trust. He needs to be crucified. It's impossible for these genuine believers who fell away into a place of rejecting faith in Jesus. Since they are presently choosing to reject Jesus, or while they are rejecting faith in Jesus, while they are continuing and ongoing in their rejecting of Jesus, crucifying the Son of God, that it is impossible. That makes it impossible for them to be renewed to repentance. So a person's present, active, and ongoing choice to reject the gospel of Jesus will make it impossible for them to repent of sin or a lifestyle of dead works. So what is Hebrews 6 not teaching? This is not a one-time momentary event. I think that's what a lot of people get so wrapped up in relating to this verse is they'll, again, they'll, they'll commit this specific sin. They'll say this specific phrase to the Holy Spirit. They will, even, even some people slip into this season of sin or, or, or maybe years of sin. I, I don't think it really matters because that's not necessarily what this is about. What this ultimately is about is not a specific sin or sins. This is about um, the activity of the heart of choosing unbelief in an ongoing way, okay? This isn't even about a one-time moment of choosing unbelief, okay? Think about Peter. Again, we talked about this in the last video. Peter chose a moment uh, or three moments or an extended period of, of hours probably of unbelief where over and over and over he said, I do not know Jesus. He was denying him in his, in his heart and with his words. But that didn't seal his doom. That didn't lock him in to now there is no more hope or chance of salvation. It wasn't impossible for him to be renewed to repentance. What makes repentance impossible, I think in the context of Hebrews 6 again, is a, is a present, active, ongoing, deliberate choice to disbelieve the gospel. And as much as you or I might be in that state of choosing to reject faith in Jesus, then of course it's going to be impossible for for us to be renewed to repentance. It's, it's going to be hard and impossible for anybody to convince us, uh, to convince these believers, you know, if you, again, you think about the context of this, to convince these believers who had known the truth, they'd believed it, they'd experienced it, and now they're saying they don't want it anymore. Well, what else is there to say to them, to convince them? They've already had Jesus. They've already experienced salvation. They've already experienced the Holy Spirit, the heavenly gift, the word of God. If they're now saying, I don't want that anymore, I don't want all that Jesus is and all that comes with him, well, how could we possibly convince them to change their mind? And I think that's, that's again, that's kind of getting at why the author is saying it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. But it's not, again, it's not this one-time momentary event. It's a present and ongoing activity of the heart to choose unbelief.
So this is entirely about what you are doing with Jesus today, now, right now. What are you doing with the Son of God? Are you willfully choosing to disbelieve and distrust who he is and what God has said, or are you believing? Read through the book of Hebrews, especially the first four chapters, I think it is, where you see him saying over and over, like, today, today, if you hear his voice. This is about what are we doing with Jesus right now? This isn't about what did you do with Jesus a couple weeks ago when you think you committed the unpardonable sin. Okay, that's, that's in, in large part, that's irrelevant. The gospel makes that irrelevant if you really understand the fullness of it. What matters is what are you doing with him today? For those who might be being described here in Hebrews 6, those who are ongoing in their willful unbelief, well, yes, they can expect uh, judgment and wrath because, again, God saves believers. God does not save unbelievers. So in as much as you are willfully embracing the identity uh, or the activity of an unbeliever, you are choosing distrust of Jesus in your heart. You are in the category of unbeliever and therefore under danger, I would say, of the, the judgment of God. So number two, this isn't about God locking someone out from the possibility to repent. And this is a big point. This is a really big point because that's what a lot of people get out of this. They think that basically in, in essence is teaching that you could be in a place where you sin, but now you want to repent, but God's basically not allowing you to repent in the right way, in the correct way. You want to repent, you long to repent, but God is basically saying, you've gone too far, you've done too much, and uh, I'm not going to give you the power to truly repent. And so then you just have to spend the rest of your days in misery and terror and condemnation, knowing that you're locked out the door. You can't get inside this door of salvation. God's locked you outside and you have nothing to look forward to but hell. There's people who believe that way. I felt that way because of this passage, but I'm convinced that is not what this is teaching. Contrary to unfortunately what I think a lot of teachers who teach about this would say and interpret it interpret this as saying. Um, so this isn't about God locking someone out from the possibility to repent, but rather this is about a person locking themselves out of the possibility to repent by their deliberate choice to disbelieve in Jesus. Okay, remember, what is making it impossible for these people to be renewed or uh, restored again to repentance? Again, we have the word since. So what's making it impossible is since or because they are presently crucifying the Son of God. These people are making a deliberate choice to continue in an ongoing crucifying of Jesus, disbelief in him, to not trust in who he is. Okay, It does not say if they fall away, it is impossible for God to allow them to truly repent again. Nowhere in this verse does it speak about God not allowing uh, repentance. It's, it's, it's not saying that anything about God f forcing this person or, 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 or holding this person in a place where they can't repent when they want to repent. And, and in all this, I'm not saying that, that God doesn't, God isn't sovereign in a way that he hardens hearts, that he, he, he gives people over to sin and things like that. That does happen. What I'm talking to is this idea that there could be a person who is desperately longing for salvation, for he, he desperately wants to repent. He longs to repent. But scriptures like this are convincing him that his repentance is fake and false and he can't truly repent. Um, I think there's teaching surrounding the scripture that promote that sort of mentality. But I think, again, I think that's dangerous and I think it's wrong. And I think that is not what this is saying. Um, this isn't about someone longing to repent with a great fear and trembling before God, but God won't permit them to repent. This has nothing to do with someone wanting to repent, but not being able to repent. Wanting repentance is in itself an element of repentance and shows that the work of repentance is already partially taking place in that person. This is all about a person choosing to not believe the gospel as a willing choice 
Hebrews 6 is not describing a person who is wanting to repent and believe the gospel, but feels incapable of doing so. Rather, Hebrews 6 describes a person who has experienced a life of faith in Jesus and the gospel, but now wants to turn their back on it and walk away from it entirely. A lot of people think that they could be in this place of wanting to repent, but God won't allow them to. I think that is not what this is saying. If you are in a place where you want to repent, even if you know that your heart, your desires aren't fully what they should be, if our salvation was dependent and on our repentance being perfect and us having all this, you know, I think we get so wrapped up in, in verses that, you know, in, in uh, 2 Corinthians that talk about, you know, it describes godly sorrow and things like that, which I think is good. And there's obviously truth in that. But I think people like myself in, in the past, I would get so wrapped up in that. And my focus would become entirely on myself, on myself. My eyes would be on me. My reliance would be on me and what I was and was not able to produce for God. I would look in myself and see all this lack of spiritual feelings. And like, I, I didn't feel the right way about my sin. I didn't feel the right way anymore about God. I used to feel this way, but now, but now I don't feel that anymore. And, and that must mean that God isn't letting me repent in the right way. And all the while I was desperate for God. I was desperate fearing, you know, his holiness and my sin and wanting restored to him, things like that. But I was convinced that since my repentance wasn't what it should be, I was locked out. And then verses like Hebrews 6 <clears throat> would just further convince me that that's what was going on. Um, all that, I think very obviously looking back now, <clears throat> was is such a, a you know, a wrong focus. My eyes were entirely on me, not on Jesus. Our salvation is not dependent on us being able to produce and bring to God all these right feelings and emotions and spiritual uh, spiritual thoughts and, and things like that. And I think I and so many people relating to this get so wrapped up in that. We think that God's waiting for us to bring to him all these emotional and spiritual feelings and like all this right this right amount of love for him and and this right amount of hatred towards sin and this right amount of spiritual zeal. And if I can bring all that to God, that's when he'll accept me. That's when my repentance is real enough for him to accept me. And I think that's all just a disguise of, of a works-based mentality. God's not waiting for us to do that. If he was, if he was waiting for us to bring him something like that before he, he accepted us, then we are all in huge trouble. Not just us who are fearing the unpardonable sin, but every other human being. Because nobody's capable of bringing him anything good. And it's if we're deceived if we think that we are. That's the gospel. That's the point. Is that we brought him nothing. We can bring him nothing. At no point does our salvation depend on us being able to bring something to God. That's what makes Christianity different. Is It's not about that. It's about what God has brought to us. What God wants from us, even as you are maybe dealing with the fear of the unpardonable sin, is that you go to him in faith as you are, just like you are. Whatever junk you have, whatever spiritual feelings and emotions you might not be having right now, um, whatever's going on, God doesn't say, first get rid of all that stuff, then come to me. He just says, come to me. Romans 5, while we were weak, Christ died for us. So we are to come to God as we are by faith and say, this is about you. This is about who you are. This is not about who I am. This is about Jesus, what you provided, what you did, what you accomplished. This isn't about what I can provide, what I can do, or what I accomplish. And we trust in that. We trust and believe that he accepts us even while we are lacking all these spiritual emotions and thoughts and things like that, that again, I think we get so wrapped up in. We must understand that Hebrews 6 is not describing some condition that God is locking someone into of being incapable of repenting, but rather is a condition that a person is fully responsible for putting himself into. It is impossible for this person to repent because they are crucifying the Son of God. Their present and active state of mind about Jesus is the cause of the impossibility to repent. So if you are wrapped up in that mentality, if you've heard teaching that would imply that you might be in this place where because of what you've done, you now want to repent, but God's not going to let you repent in the right way, or you, you're, not, you're not able to truly repent. It's impossible for you to repent. I would submit that is the wrong way to view this. It's impossible to repent for you or me 
in as much as we choose to continue in a state of unbelief in Jesus, seeing that they are crucifying the Son of God afresh, that is the because, that is the sense, that is the, the reason why the impossibility of repentance is existing in that situation. It's not because this momentary sin, it's not because this curse that, that somebody pronounced against the Holy Spirit, it's not because of anything like that. It's because of this ongoing activity of the heart of choosing unbelief. Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and life that God has provided for humanity. To reject that is to reject the only plan, the only solution, the only means that God has provided for forgiveness and reconciliation with himself. The warnings in Hebrews 6 concerns those who are doing just that. If you have experienced God's truth and walked in the benefits of the gospel, but then you make a decisive choice to abandon it all and walk away, then what else is left to convince you? God has nothing else to offer you to convince you to repent. You've already tried out God's best. You have experienced the salvation in Jesus that has been offered, and you have now rejected it. What else could be done to change your mind now? If you've experienced God's only plan and remedy for your sin and walked in it for a time, but now you've decided you want nothing to do with it, then what is there to convince you? This is why the author of Hebrews says it is impossible for these kinds of people to be renewed to repentance. They have been face to face with the grace of God in Jesus and have turned it down. What else could be done to convince them? These people are making a decisive choice to abandon faith in Jesus. They are walking the same attitude of heart as those who crucified Christ on the cross. So Jesus is all that God has to offer. Everything God has. He, he is God's way, God's truth, and God's life. To reject the light that God has given in him, for a person to have experienced and believed in and walked with Jesus, and then say, I tried that, I don't want that anymore. I think, again, part of what, what is making this an impossible situation, and here in a minute I'm going to get to a teacher that I respect that I think has a really good interpretation of this that would that implies that the word impossible should be understood much more as meaning very difficult. Not impossible in a literal sense, but in a, a, an exaggerated sort of way of saying it would be very, very difficult. And you think about this, it, it makes a lot of sense. For a person who, is, who has had Jesus, known him, understood the truth, and now is choosing to reject him, again, presently and ongoing, what could you possibly offer to that person to change their mind? They've had the best that there is, the best that God's had to offer, the only way, truth, and life, the means of salvation. And they're saying, I don't want that anymore. Well, there's nothing else. God has nothing else to give them. God has nothing else to say to these people. And if these people reject faith in Jesus, well, that's God's, Jesus is God's final word. Hebrews uh, 1 says, and God's spoken many ways at many times, but in these last days, he's spoken in his son. Jesus is the word of God. If, if you reject that, well, you are rejecting God and all that he has to give. God has nothing else. So if you choose to reject Jesus and all that God has done and said in him, then of course it's, imp it's impossible. Like what's, what's going to convince you back into faith? And so even that though, is, is this condition necessarily permanent? So say there is this, this kind of person, this genuine Christian had a genuine faith, but he's now choosing to disbelieve and reject Jesus. Okay, that's who this text of scripture is about. And it's saying that for that kind of person, it's impossible for them to be renewed to repentance. Well, in Romans 11, uh, in Romans 11, 23, it says, talking about Israel who sinned, has, was uh, cast off by God, sent into uh, a sort of judgment. What he says about Israel, I think absolutely applies to here, um, what we're talking about here. He says, if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. So what I would say is if you are in that situation, or if somebody else is in that situation, stop crucifying Jesus afresh, stop refusing to believe, and you can be saved. I don't think it's a necessarily permanent condition. Um, I think the only sin that locks us out of salvation is the sin of willfully continuing in unbelief. So, and as much as we continue in unbelief, yes, we are in danger. But 
turn from that unbelief. I see no reason biblically to say that you can't turn from that unbelief and be saved, be reconciled. There's a teacher called Michael Heiser who has uh, some good teaching on on this chapter. I just listened to his uh, explanation of Hebrews 6 a few days ago, and it was helpful and gave me some, some new thoughts to think about. But he said, and, and something that he teaches concerning this passage is that when it talks about impossible, when it talks about the impossibility of repentance, he says that this is, we should look at this as an exaggerated exaggerated language to convey the idea of it being very difficult, not literally impossible, as if there's absolutely no possible way a person in this condition could ever come back, but that it is very difficult. So he referred to Mark 10, 23 through 27, and this is kind of how I'm going to wrap up this video. I think there's there's some things in here that are really encouraging. There's this in, uh, an encouragement with this that I want to leave you guys with. Even if you got to this point in the video and you're still not convinced, you're still wrestling with Hebrews 6. Maybe you're still convinced for some reason, whether it's because of Hebrews 6 or some other verse, that it is impossible for you still. Hold on, hang on, let me get to the end here because I want to say something to you that I think will touch on that. So... Michael Heiser, in saying that we should look at this as meaning very difficult and not literally impossible, he used Mark 10, 23 through 27, which says, Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. By all logic, that that's equivalent to saying it's impossible. Um, a camel is not going to go through the eye of a needle. So they were even more astonished and said to one another, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, this is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. So Michael Heiser refers to this because obviously there are rich men and the kingdom of God. But yet this is in essence saying it is impossible for rich men to enter the kingdom of God, but obviously not with God. So what Michael Heiser uses this passage for is, is to kind of back up his, his point that when we see Hebrews 6 saying it's impossible for these people to be renewed to repentance, the idea is that it's, it's for these people who have had Jesus and now said they don't want him anymore, it's, it's very unlikely. It's going to be very difficult. It's, it's, it's very difficult that they would return to faith again. It's, it's not something that is likely to happen, but not literally impossible. Just in the same way Jesus is saying here, you know, this is impossible. This is something that cannot possibly happen, but yet we know by the power of God, by his grace, it's, it's not impossible. God brings rich people into the kingdom. So nothing is impossible with God. This is what I, I want to leave you with. Again, if you're still wrapped up in fear, if you're still confused by Hebrews 6, let's say the worst of the worst possibility. My interpretation is completely wrong. It's, it is impossible. Your situation is impossible. I'm convinced that's not true, but I know I know what it's like to be in that state where it's so hard to receive any encouragement from anybody. And so maybe you're still convinced that that's you. It's impossible. Well, the scripture says nothing is impossible with God. And that includes whatever situation is involved in Hebrews 6, whether that's you or not. If that's you, again, worst case scenario, then I would encourage you to take verses like Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus says, very truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And nothing, nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing is impossible for those who believe. Luke 137, for nothing will be impossible with God. Again, that includes Hebrews 6. Grab onto a promise of God and refuse to let go. If you are in that situation where you are fearing the unpardonable sin, you are convinced that that's you, you are convinced that you've gone too far, you're locked out of salvation. I'm convinced that that is, in large part, there's a lot of activity of the devil, I think, involved there, bringing accusations and lies. 
and, and probably even your own mind um, accusing you. I believe that what God would have you do and what's going to bring you out, what's going to play a big role in bringing you to light and freedom is that you got to learn to grab onto promises of God that can counteract and contradict those lying accusations that you're hearing. The thoughts of hopelessness and despair, you got to find specific promises of God that, that put those things in their place. And that doesn't mean they're immediately going to go away. But when, when again, we talked about this last time, when Jesus was in the wilderness, Satan threw um, at least one time, I think maybe a couple, he threw scriptures or, or even just theological ideas at Jesus to try to get him out of faith. Jesus responded with verses from the book of Deuteronomy. He said, it is written. I think you have to do that for yourself. You have to know that you are, you are dealing here with a God for whom nothing is impossible. A God whose kindness and grace is far beyond what you're giving him credit for. Um, if you're locked up in this place of feeling like you are absolutely condemned and God wants nothing more to do with you, I think you are, you're not giving God and his love and his kindness and the, the full scope of the power of the gospel, you're not giving that enough credit in that moment. And, and I would say, give it more credit. And as much as you have breath and you want to repent, he wants you to repent. He wants you to come to him. Um, nothing is impossible with God. If you feel like you're looking, you're staring Hebrews 6 in the face and it's condemning you as being in a situation where it's impossible to repent, I'd say look right back at it and say nothing is impossible with God. As you fear, as you hear and you fear those accusing thoughts coming at you saying your situation is hopeless, it's impossible, you reply back, it is written, Nothing is impossible with God. And that includes Hebrews 6. Nothing means nothing. It doesn't say nothing will be impossible with God except for the situations involved in Hebrews 6. It doesn't say that. Again, like we talked about last time with Jesus' words where he says, anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. There's no exceptions there. It doesn't say anybody who comes to me except for those in the Hebrew 6 category. Those people are cast out. But anybody else who comes to me, you know, I'll, I'll take them in. It doesn't say it doesn't say that or anything like it. And neither does this verse. There's no exceptions given here. Nothing is impossible with God. That includes whatever situation Hebrews 6 is describing. So you, I, I would encourage you guys to take that and grab onto it and grab onto other specific promises like Psalm 34, 22 that says, The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. No one, not one person whose, whose way of living is to run to God and try to take refuge in him. If you're, if you're in this situation with the unpardonable sin and the fear of it, and you're consumed with that fear of condemnation, run to God for refuge. Run to him, even if he's the one you're afraid of right now. You're not thinking rightly about him. Run to him and say, help me. Like, I, I, I'm in this mess. Will you help me? Will you bring me out of this darkness into your light? If you do that, what are you doing? Well, you're, you're taking refuge in him. In the midst of your condemnation, and you, even as you're convinced that it's God who's condemning you, take refuge in him. Because this is telling us that the Lord will redeem your life. If you are the kind of person who, in the midst of whatever it is, even if it's the result of your own sin, you are running and taking refuge in him, his promise to you is that you will not be condemned. There is no condemnation for those who take refuge in God. Psalm 25, 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. None who wait for you. In your darkness, whatever you're in, wait on the Lord. Look to him. Okay, Psalm 34, 5 says, Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. So wait for him and look to him. Take refuge in him. When you do these things, you are you are a certain person. You are you are in the category of people who over and over the, the promises of scripture say that kind of person will not be ashamed. The one who takes refuge in God will not be condemned. The one who waits for God will, will not be ashamed. The one who looks to him, his face will never be ashamed. Ashamed meaning disappointed or or um 
like you're going to find in the end. You're going to put your hope in God, but at the end of the day, he's still going to reject you anyways. The point of this verse is to say those who look to him, that's an experience that they don't have. You're never going to look to God in faith and at the end of the day say, oh, I I shouldn't have done that. Like that wasn't the right choice. Those who wait to him and follow that through to the end, you believe him to the end, your face will not be ashamed, meaning you will not you will not be disappointed that you did that. And then lastly, Psalm 27, 13 through 14. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Believe that you will you will come out of your darkness. God will bring you out. Grab onto a promise. Grab onto these promises. Look to Jesus. Look to him. Know that this isn't forever. Your situation, your darkness, whatever it is, even if this if this explanation of Hebrews 6 did nothing to help you, you're still in what seems like an impossible situation. Nothing is impossible with God. Nobody who seeks Jesus will be put to shame. Seek him. Look to him. Wait for him. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And, and he will deliver. He will come and save you. If you guys have any questions about any of this, um, especially relating to Hebrews 6, the explanation I gave, if if that just caused maybe more questions, if you feel like the explanation was lacking or you, or you want further explanation of, of different aspects of this passage, let me know. Any questions, please leave them in the comments. You can also contact me um, at contact at greatlightstudios.com. Um, yeah, let me know questions and also just things that are helpful. Things that were that I'm covering in these videos that are helping you. If, if anything, um, that's always helpful to hear and helpful to kind of continue to move me in the right direction as far as what to talk about in the, the future. So yeah, hope you guys are well and uh, look forward to seeing you again soon. You have been listening to The Great Light Podcast. To find more information and resources, or to watch our films, go to greatlightstudios.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube. If you want to support this program and partner with the Ministry of Great Light Studios, you can do so through our website. There you can also find both video and audio versions of this podcast.